Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by freelance film journalist and video essayist Lee Singer. Hello, Lee. Hi, Sam. Thank you very much for having me on. You may have seen some of Lee's work on the Little White Lies website. That's how I discovered your work. Seems to be quite a good ongoing collaboration you've got going on there. Yeah, I think Little White Lies have really sort of uh, made a point of trying to develop the the kind of online audiovisual side of things. Obviously, the magazine is great and they have, you know, articles online. But I think there's been a sort of concerted effort to keep the sort of the audiovisual side of things going. And it's it's sort of a, I guess it's an ongoing thing that's starting to sort of, you know, take shape and, and spread. And uh, I think some of your other guests have also sort of dabbled in this as well. But it's something I'm really passionate about. And um, I am kind of, you know, f- advocating constantly because I think it's a sort of new sort of branch of film criticism that just seems to make a lot of sense, you know, because you can actually work with, the audio and the video of the film, uh, which is not to knock writing because obviously there's amazing film writing and has been for decades, but it's not going to replace writing for sure. But it seems to give a kind of extra, um, you know, branch on the side where you can kind of do some some different things. And I think that for me, that's the big appeal. How did you get into you know, being a video essayist? Because you say it's quite a new branch of, of criticism, um, but it's it's become hugely popular. What was it about it that appealed to you? Basically, I started to see examples of, I guess, what we call a video essay coming out, mainly of the US. And there were a couple of um, American critics who I also read. So there's a guy called Matt Zoller Seitz, who written some great books about Mad Men and Wes Anderson, people may know him from. And he started to do a series on Wes Anderson, actually. And there were some other people, a guy called Kevin B. Lee and a guy called Koganard, who's gone on to make feature films. And it just really sort of fired my imagination because I could see what they were doing. And it really appealed to me because outside of my sort of uh, written journalism, I'd always been interested in just sort of making and sort of dabbling a bit with editing. So I had sort of editing software, very basic stuff. And this suddenly felt like, well, actually, this is a way to kind of combine the journalism with kind of my interest in filmmaking. So I basically put together, I guess, what would you call a supercut? And I sent it to Matt Zoller Sites, who I didn't know, but I, I had his Twitter handle. And I just said, look, I've put this together. I'd just be interested to see what we think. And Matt gave me my break. He, he At that time, he ran a, a sort of section of the IndieWire website called Press Play, which was all about audiovisual stuff. And he put it up there. He wrote a sort of introduction, which absolutely is the thing that got it noticed. And it kind of took off and went viral. Um, it was on sort of breaking the fourth wall, which is kind of a fun subject. You know, people kind of like that thing where, you know, actors look to camera or, you know, you, the film acknowledges that it's a film. What really then completely got me passionate about it was it became this conversation. So people would write to me and say, oh, what about this film? And why didn't you use this? And I really like that. And then I made a, again, summarise it. I made a second video that incorporated some people's suggestions and got in touch with them to say that their suggestions were in the video. And basically I found, and um, I think this would hold true for a lot of other people. And if you put stuff on YouTube or Vimeo, people want to talk about it with you 
And I felt that would have been missing, at least for me, in, in terms of, you know, because I've been writing for a number of years for, you know, newspapers, magazines, etc. But this kind of dialogue and kind of connection with people was something that I hadn't personally experienced in the way that I did with the video stuff. I guess you also get to have a bit of fun with this. Like, I, I really love that What If Goodfellas was a 90s sitcom uh, video you made with Little White Lies. Oh, thank you. It's just such a fun idea. Well, I mean, it just came from that whole funny how speech, you know, the brilliant Joe Pesci uh, speech. And, it, you know, that scene is all about him holding court and those people sort of having to laugh. It just made me think about, you know, laugh tracks. Not so much nowadays, but certainly, you know, in the 70s and 80s or whatever, sitcoms had, you know, that was standard you had the laugh track to sort of cue people up that this was funny or whatever. And it just was like, okay, well then what if you use that? And actually then as that scene goes on and it gets progressively more uncomfortable, you can almost use it against the scene itself in a way that I guess Scorsese is doing it because at one point, it if you were at all laughing, it stops becoming funny at all. And yet the characters have to sort of humour Joe Pesci's psycho. <laughs> uh, and it's just a really interesting dynamic. I mean, comedy is one of my main interests. So that as a clip is a fascinating example of where does comedy sit within that scene and that film? Because some of it, he actually does make a couple of funny jokes by the end, but it's not the stuff that people have been laughing at. I think Chinese, you know, and again, that's the sort of thing I, I would be hard pushed to try and figure out how to do that as a written piece. Do you know what I mean? It's like that to me seems like if I can make it work or if I can explore how to try that, video would be the absolute form to do it in. You probably could do it as a as an audio pit as well, right? Just with the, you know, laughter track and the thing. But having the visuals there as well just sort of makes it, you know, makes it feel like it, it could work really well in that format. So Lee, you obviously watch a lot of films for your work, you know, being that you you are often re-editing and, and critiquing over the top of them. Do you st get, still get to watch a film just for pleasure at home? You know, like, it's Friday night, let's put a film on, and I'm not going to think about making a video essay about it. Do you know what? It's actually really hard. And I think maybe that's something a lot of uh, journal film journalists and critics come to, because I find it very hard to switch off in that way, because... I mean, I'm genuinely interested in what is in front of me. And so part of you is then thinking, oh, that camera pushed in there or, you know, that wow, they cut really fast there. So it's not so much, like, I mean, you can still enjoy stuff and watch stuff for fun. And I think to me, the test, one of the, one of the tests of a really good film is when it kind of breaks through all that and you just suddenly find yourself completely swept up in it or enjoying it. So and that can be anything from, you know, Portrait of a Lady on Fire to Paddington 2, which is one of my absolute best films of the last 10 years you know and I remember sitting in there watching it and just absolutely swept away by that film because it was just like a perfect movie you know every beat everything clicked and it was funny and it was touching and it was inventive and visually really interesting but it's almost like the film has to be really good to sort of get you you know to sort of break through that kind of critical faculties but I mean just to sort of uh, touch on the other thing one of the other things I do, because I am uh, involved in programming, your task is then to sort of watch it very analytically. And that's a sort of slightly different type of viewing, which is also a bit trickier in a way, because so many criteria <laughs> are kind of, you know, at the forefront of your mind, when actually maybe to be fair to the film, you should be trying to watch it just as a sort of viewing experience and as a pleasurable experience. But I think that's also part of the sort of, you know, the, the upside and downside of programming. It's like you, you do need to sort of be assessing it at the same time as experiencing it. 
And so it's quite hard to sort of switch that side of your brain up for me anyway. So when you're deciding what to watch at home, does a film's runtime ever come into your, you know, cross your mind? If I'm honest, not massively, except in two really specific occasions, which I guess are kind of specific to the job. So one, as I sort of mentioned, the programming side of things, you've got to have sort of an eye on that when you're thinking about if we program this film and it's three and a half hours <laughs> versus a nice tight, you know, 87 minute film, how does that impact on everything? And the other side of that is it's almost the flip side. When If you attend a festival as a, as a critic or a journalist, the sheer practicalities of like getting from venue to venue and it's like, that film's two and a half hours. I'm probably gonna have to queue for that other one two hours ahead because it's really popular. I'm, it's going to be too tight but there's a 65 minute film over there which is further away but actually I'll get out you know and that kind of really you know slightly boringly prosaic you know <laughs> timetabling is actually a key factor you know when I've when I've gone to festivals I'm not one of the journalists who can walk in at the last minute and get a you know deluxe front row seat so therefore I actually have to very seriously look at oh that film's two and a half hours that film's 80 minutes what's you know i need to eat at some point in the day <laughs> but you know i am a huge admirer of you know people who can get in get out and do a good job in 90 minutes i mean it's like that classic quote it's like you know about letter writing you know sorry i wrote you a long letter i didn't have the time to write you a shorter one the idea that you know actually to get something really tight and concise is much more time consuming than just going blur now i'm not saying that every long film is just going blur but there's a real art to, you know, the films that you, you discuss on this podcast, because to do a sort of a kind of complete good job in a short space of time is really, it's a real challenge. And I don't think everyone can do it. And, you know, it's, I, I, I would also say some of my favourite filmmakers very rarely hit 90 minutes, but then they're doing other things, perhaps. So it's not just a sort of sign of quality, but to do a good, you know, 90 minutes or under film is, is that's, that's some achievement, I think. What film did you choose for our under 90 minute film festival today? Jim Jarmusch's 1984 film, Stranger Than Paradise. Rootless Hungarian emigre Willie, John Laurie, his pal Eddie, Richard Edson, and visiting 16 year old cousin, Ava, Esther Ballant, always managed to make the least of any situation, whether aimlessly traversing the drab interiors and environs of New York, Cleveland, or an anonymous Florida suburb. I, I don't know if I'd watch that based on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it doesn't really I've capture the feel of the film. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's all true, but it, it, it kind of misses all the charms and all the kind of um, things that make the film so special, I guess. I mean, to be fair, any sort of story summary of this film would struggle because it's not about plot. Um, I mean, it's literally about plotlessness, I would argue. So I think you have your job, you have your work cut out to try and summarise that film. If you want, I've got one that Jarmusch uh, gave when he sort of, for the press kit, because it, it premiered at Cannes in 1984. And I mean, his is obviously very film, scene literate. Should, do you want me to... That, yeah, so. I mean, he's he's probably a more qualified uh, <laughs> yeah, qualified person think, right? to do the synopsis <laughs> than the, the person in the DVD marketing team who, who wrote that. <laughs> okay, so apparently, according to Jim, Jim Jarmusch, it is a semi-neorealist black comedy in the style of an imaginary Eastern European director obsessed with Ozu and familiar with the 1950s US television show The Honeymooners. Now, that's probably not going to sell it to a bunch of people either. 
but it's probably more in keeping yeah i mean it's i mean you know you have to be a bit cinephile i guess to sort of go along with that but that's a that's a pretty i would say accurate sensibility i I think for listeners who've seen the film like it kind of hits the nail on the head i really love the detail about the imaginary eastern european filmmaker (laughs) exactly yeah yeah (laughs) because it does sort of have that feeling like you know if you were I don't know, idly sort of guessing where this film was from, you would, you know, that would probably be sort of top of your list. Yeah, well, I mean, it's really interesting because obviously the characters in there, um, at least two of the main ones, are Hungarian or from by birth. And certainly Willie's a Hungarian immigrant and, Est- and Ava has just literally arrived from Budapest. But I think what's really, fa- one of the things I find fascinating about the film is it, it kind of splits the difference between a sort of an American style and a European style. So the sort of the long takes and the kind of slight distance, I mean, these are all generalizations, but I think a lot of people would make assumptions or connections with sort of a European art house cinema. And yet you're in these kind of very American locations, whether it's New York or even when you go to some, you know, less, I guess, cinematic places like Cleveland, it still has the culture and the music and, you know, the accents and the the dress sense. So I think it's a, for me, that was, I mean, I saw this at a time when I hadn't seen a lot of, I guess, quote unquote, foreign language cinema, as in non-English language cinema for me. So it just felt different. You know, there was something about it. Yes, they were obviously all speaking English. I mean, most of the characters um, and it's set in places that I'd, I'd even been to, but it just had a, it's just that sort of a, a slight tilt. You know, there's something that's a little bit off kilter about it which appealed to me. And I can imagine for a lot of people, that, well, not for a lot, but for some people, that's maybe off-putting because it's got that distance and, you know, the camera and the characters are very guarded with emotion. It kind of keeps you a little bit arm's length. But for me, that just sort of pulled me in because it was this really interesting mix of those two distinct sort of cinemas and yet by a young American filmmaker. So I, th- I thought that was really, really interesting when I first saw it. It's uh, 1984, kind of at the very beginning of Jim Jarmusch's filmmaking career. He's still going today. He had a film out last year, you know, over 40 years of filmmaking uh, from him now, still working with uh, some of the same cast members. I think we see uh, Esther Ballant in um, the zombie film he made. Yeah, The Dead Um, Don't Die. I think she's one of the waitresses. uh, Not in it for long, but it's lovely to (laughs) see her. You know, it's like if you you followed his career, I think he's one of these directors who has that sort of repertory company feel. Um, you know, often the same collaborators in front of the camera, behind the camera, and just characters who sort of reoccur. Um, I mean, Tom Waits, who I'm a, a huge fan of, is not in this, but he's in the film that comes after that, Down by Law, and he was also in The Dead Don't Die, and he's also done music uh, for Jarmish films and has been in other Jarmish films. And John Lurie, who is the lead in Stranger Than Paradise, contributed music to Jarmusch's first film, which is the one before this, Permanent Vacation, and is also in Down by Law. So it, you get that sense of a kind of real, you know, a troupe. That's something, again, that really appeals to me about uh, Jarmusch's work. It's that sort of, you know, family vibe, even though it's not at all, none of his films, I would say, are sort of sentimental in the slightest. But they have that sort of, you know, if you know who those people are, you kind of you almost by default get a bit of sentimentality just out of knowing that these people are all still you know pooling pulling together and uh, and working together so when did you first see this lee so i first saw this film it would have been sometime in the 90s i was, stu- I was studying film and i think the tutor we did a sort of road movie course 
just that in itself is interesting with Stranger Than Paradise because it doesn't turn into a road movie till about a third of the way in. But anyway, it was on that. And I think at the time, because it was in the 90s, but so I'd, I think I might have already seen like Mystery Train, which was his film at the end of the 80s. And I'd kind of been interested by it. But this one really blew me away just because it was so odd, you know, like the black and white, the way it's shot, which I guess we'll talk about as well. And the music, I just remember that scene at the beginning where, so Ava, the young Hungarian woman arrives and she's walking down a New York street and she's got her cassette player and just just plays the Screaming Jay Hilkins song out loud as she's walking along, I put a spell on you. And that, I was just absolutely captivated. I just, just, I mean, her as a character was captivating and just the fact, and that scene goes on for minutes, you know, she just follows her walking along the street playing that song, which I then grew to love. It really, it just felt so fresh and so different. And obviously by that time, I think Jim Jarmusch was a bit of a name in sort of, you know, American independent cinema that I was sort of coming to a bit later. But it just, it really made me, it sort of cemented my um, interest in him. Certainly in the early stuff, I, I would, personally, I'm less sort of a fan of more of the later films. By and large, my favourite Jarmusch films are sort of from the first half dozen or so. And certainly this, I would say, is probably still my my favourite of his. And it just, yeah, so I saw it, I, I guess I saw it in a sort of academic context, but it was so much fun. And yet you could absolutely analyse it because the style is so distinct and so, you know, uh, concentrated and, you know, uncompromising. And it just felt like, you know, this is a filmmaker who is absolutely doing his own thing. You know, there's no concession to any sort of trend or, you know, what people might think is cool or interesting. He's doing his thing and you either go with it or you don't. And I guess enough people went with it that he, you know, was able to make films for 40 years. If I would use, I guess, one word to sort of talk about Jim Jarmusch is it's unhurried. He just does his own thing, his own space. In fact, I was, because obviously when I was trying to find a film, apart from his first film, Permanent Vacation, which is very short, it's like 75 minutes. This is the only one of his films that's under, under 90 minutes. And most of them have almost no plot, <laughs> but he just <laughs> takes his time. You know, his films, they're about observing just very, you know, minutiae and character observations and just silences. And so, you know, I can't imagine Jim Jarmusch ever in a hurry. I can't imagine Jim Jarmusch running for a bus. I don't, I don't <laughs> imagine he's ever, I mean, I can't imagine him hurrying anywhere. <laughs> you know, he's just, everything unfolds at exactly his tempo, you know, with the sort of people that he's interested in. And you kind of, I guess you have to buy into that world. And for me, this film was absolutely a sort of gateway to sort of, yeah, I, I want, I'm, I'm interested in seeing a film that isn't about a really complicated plot that needs, you know, this beat at this time and now the twist and the turn. It's just, you know, watching these, for me, very interesting people, but they don't feel like they're doing much. And yet it's still really gripping. I guess it opened up for me because it was, it was ultimately an American film. There are different ways to even make uh, you know English language films which I hadn't seen up until that point I'm not saying they didn't exist of course they did but from in my experience I was very much you know brought up on mainstream uh, English language film and so this was one of those early sort of formative films where it's like wow you know they're in New York and they're American sounding but they're not they're, there's no quest here you know there's no he has to get the, you know he has to do the mission and get the girl and then there's going to be a villain who you know st steps in the way it was just like these guys are really weird and and they're not very successful and they're not very articulate 
and they don't really have much of a plan <laughs> of anything. And yet I'm really interested in them. Hello, I'm Martin Zotz-Austwick. And I'm Sam Pei. And together we make a podcast called Song, Song by Song. Song. But we don't do it alone. Almost every week we have a guest. And we've had some wonderful guests, including writers John Ronson. John Hodgman. Simon Stevens. We've had uh, musicians Eliza Rickman. Uh, Jenny Conley-Drizos from The Decemberists. And Jeremy Wormsley and Elizabeth Sankey from Summer Camp. Uh, we've had podcasters Jenny Owen-Youngs, Jeffrey Craner and Phoebe Judge. All sorts of people join us to talk about the music of Tom Waits. And if that sounds fun, why don't you join us too? You can do that at our website, songbysongpodcast.com or search for Song by Song wherever you get your podcasts. My one word review of this film is, you know, it was cool. This is such a cool <laughs> film. And being in the presence of this film and, and being with these characters was, it felt very sort of easy and, and hugely interesting. And I was just kind of happy to be around them. You know, they're all sort of losers in their own way. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a nice way to spend 89 minutes, I have to say. Yeah, he snuck in with one minute to spare. I mean, I think what you said is really true. I mean, it's cool. And I think a kind of um, a criticism of Jarmusch would be cool in the kind of hipster idea where, you know, everyone is just, no one betrays any emotion and everyone just looks a little bit too sharp. And it's so minimalist that, you know, you have to do almost too much work. And for me, again, personally, some of the later films, that is, that's been my reaction to them. Um, but this one, it feels different. And there's something about these characters and their situation. It's like, I, I look at them as people who want to connect with each other, but they just, they don't have the language for it, mm. you know, and they're denying so much of themselves. So, you know, Willie, the main character played by John Lurie, you know, you find out very early, his real name is Bella, which is, I guess, a very, you know, like Bella Ta, very traditional a Hungarian name. And he's absolutely adamant that he doesn't want to be called that. And he doesn't want to speak Hungarian, even to his newly arrived cousin who, you know, presumably doesn't necessarily know a huge amount of English. And they're sort of, the way that they they're unable to sort of you know embrace themselves fully and that completely scuppers them with each other in their sort of personal relationships and it can be annoying and frustrating and funny but ultimately I found it really quite moving because they feel so relatable that they're just they're just this far away from being able to properly talk to each other so I mean, just, I don't know uh, how relevant this is, but, you know, the film was actually, it's in three parts. And the first part was shot separately. So the first section is called The New World. It's about 30 minutes long. And they made that as a short film. And that ends with uh, Esther Balance character, Ava, leaving Willie. And that scene at the end, he's sort of trying to say to her, well, you know, take care of yourself. And you can see he wants to be more affectionate or, you know, maybe continue their relationship, but he can't do it. And actually, so that's why that would actually be quite a lovely ending for that you know, if that was a 30 minute short film. But I love the fact that then they actually continued, you know, I guess John Mish himself couldn't let go of them. And you said this earlier, they're not likable <laughs> necessarily. I mean, you know, uh, Eddie's a lot more likable than Willie, but he's a very self-centered, prickly guy. And there's not a lot to love there. But because you can sort of see that if he could just change himself a little bit, maybe he'd be able to, you know, help himself out that to me was really captivating and it's just those little touches that i think when jarmish is at his best he he almost like rejects any overt emotion but it it's just there you know in the writing in the performances in the way it's filmed and if you're sort of i guess open to it 
they can be quite powerfully emotional experiences, even though they don't seem on the surface to be that way. They seem to be very laid back and laconic. But I think in this film in particular, it's there. But you have to sort of, you know, really look for it, I guess. You mentioned briefly earlier about the camera work in this film. I think I'm right in saying it's entirely shot with this locked off camera angle. You know, it's not a flashy film. It's just actually seeing people use the confines of the frame uh, is quite a visually engaging kind of tool that Jarmusch engages here. I, I mean, I've read this, so I haven't counted it myself, but I, I've read that it's 60, that the entire film is 67 shots. So each scene is one shot. And the camera does sometimes, you know, pan left or right or move, but it doesn't cut. So each scene and then it goes to black and you sort of hear some audio and it goes to the next scene. Um, and I read someone else talk about it almost like a photo album. So it's almost like you get a snapshot, kind of go away. Here's the next snapshot, and that's a kind of interesting. Like the black, the the black fades to black are sort of like the spaces between the shots. I mean, I almost imagined it as like you know the characters are so listless and so you know the the, the film can't even be bothered to sort of coalesce <laughs> and kind of come together. But actually, it really works for these characters in this particular situation. I I read an interview with uh, Tom DeChillo, who's the cinematographer, who also went on to be a director and directed uh, Living in Oblivion, which is a really good uh, sort of indie nineties uh, behind the scenes filmmaking comedy. And he was the DP on this, and he said actually. Jim Jarmusch only had two lenses, which were both wide lenses. So, and they didn't have a lot of time and they didn't have a lot of film stock, so they couldn't do coverage. So it almost lent itself towards the style, but then it's not just like, oh, that's all we can do. Then they leaned into it and made it absolutely speak to the sort of storyline and the characters that they've got. So it's almost like, I think that's something that it's easy to forget about, especially when, you know, Jim Jarmusch obviously has a lot more, you know, things at his disposal nowadays. But I love that idea of first time or new filmmakers using the restrictions and limitations to their advantage. And I guess that's exactly what they've done here. It's like, we, you know, that, that the first um, third, the, so the, the film that was the short originally, The New World, that was made with leftover film stock from a Vin Vendors film that Jarmusch was working on called State of Things in 1982. So they gave him the leftover film stock and they shot that uh, opening 32 minutes in the weekend. It's super conscious of what they can do with the little resources they have. But then I think what's the sort of the next step, and I guess that's what separates someone like Jim Jarmusch from you know a filmmaker less accomplished, is you make that an absolute feature and you you, you explore how that limitation can work for you with what you're doing. But I think for the lifestyle that these three three characters have, where they're sort of drifting along and they're not really sure what to do, the kind of fades to black and the locked, you know, the sort of single shot uh, scenes, it just feels like it speaks so eloquently and cinematically to their lives. And I think that's another reason I was just like, wow, I didn't even think you could tell a, a story or a film in that way. Just why, but why not? Yeah, each scene is one shot. Yeah, in terms of their life, <laughs> they're not going anywhere fast. And I guess the camera work kind of complements that, sort of commenting on 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 their just you know lack of success as as people. Well, I mean the the other great thing, and I think this is totally deliberate, and it to me it's a it's like a genius in joke. It's like because it's black and white, and because it's got that kind of smudged grey sheen to it everywhere looks the same. So yeah. they go to Cleveland in the middle of winter and it's snow and then they end up in Florida, you know, sort of near the beach and everything looks exactly the same. And again, to me, that's just really brilliant filmmaking because it's almost like wherever, because they haven't figured out who they are, what they want, where they should go, they can be in, you know, freezing cold, you know, 
sort of snow or they can be in the sun and it doesn't actually change the look. And I think, again, that's such a, a smart piece of, you know, uh, filmmaking and, and cinematography. Yeah, the, uh, you know, even when they're in New York at the beginning, one of the most iconic kind of cities, you really only see quite a plain looking street and the inside of an apartment. And actually, they go to Florida and they spend the whole time inside a motel, you know, and, and they go to Cleveland and it's inside, you know, the aunt's house. It's, um, you know, they, they're, they're traveling, going on such an epic trip to just be indoors in these very, you know, modest settings. Jim Jarmusch was never going to start this shot with like, you know, Empire State Building at night with the moon, <laughs> like, you know, Woody Allen, Manhattan style. It's just like, it's obviously not his thing. But again, that's what makes it so unusual. Because yes, they, they obviously, they did go to Cleveland and they did go to Florida and they obviously shot in New York, but they've kind of deliberately, like, you know, smudged them all together so that there's, there's very little difference. I mean, obviously, you know, you see snow here and you see, you know, sun there, but it's just the, the aesthetic and the sort of what it means to those characters within that, uh, those environments is what it's all about. Is she gonna want a TV dinner? Yes, I'm not hungry. Why is it called TV dinner? Um, I'm supposed to eat it while I watch TV. Television. I know what a TV is. Where does that meat come from? What do you mean? What does that meat come from? I guess it comes from a cow. From a cow, it doesn't even look like meat. Do you have a favourite scene in this film, Lee? I do love that scene that I mentioned, the one that really sort of just knocked me out when I first saw it with um, uh, Ava playing her Screaming Jay Hawkins walking down the street. Because I just felt like, what a wonderful sort of defiant I am me. And yet she's playing American, you know, she's not walking down the street playing some Hungarian tune. She wants to assimilate. It's, you know, there's so many interesting things there. It's like she's declaring herself and yet she's playing music from that country that she really wants to sort of, you know, fit into and yet wants to be apart from. So that scene always, always really, really uh, resonates with me. And uh, the ending as well. I mean, I don't know how much I can spoil on this, but... Uh, I sort of address it with, without being too specific, but they end up in places that they you would not have expected them to end up, like each of them. And even that just feels a bit of a surreal joke because, you know, it involves aeroplanes and stuff. And the, the ticket counter, that they're at this like tiny, it feels like they're at this nondescript, like, you know, military style airport. And the ticket counter apparently has got a flight direct to Budapest. And he just, yeah. and the little the little counter that the guy is selling the tickets at. And that guy is actually uh, Tom DiCillo, the, the cinematographer doing a little uh, cameo. But it's almost like, I didn't know if Jarmusch is just messing with us here, but like the idea that, that this is all just fantasy because it just seems so unlikely. But at the same time, where each of those characters end up feels kind of perfect because there's movement, but there's not necessarily growth. It's surprising. And yet it feels kind of like it fits with what you've seen of these people so far at the same time as being almost just completely surreal. But it fits so well with the whole idea of, you know, these immigrants struggling to find themselves and connect or not connect with their past and find a new way forward. And it's just sort of, it feels very elegant. You know, it's a bit crazy, but it feels very elegant and it just ends. And then, you know, who knows what happens.
there we have it. Stranger Than Paradise is in our 90 minutes or less film fest. So what I can give you, Lee, and it's good actually because you got you know the background as film programmer um, here. I, I can give you a print of the film and uh, a venue um, and and a bit of budget, you know, to put on a show. How would you put your personal stamp on a, on a screening of Stranger Than Paradise? Okay, I've, I've thought a little bit about this. So first of all, I would want it to be a drive-in, like a sort of pop-up uh, screen in the middle of some very un- unlikely location. I mean, maybe not Cleveland in winter, but, you know, somewhere that is not screaming like, you know, deluxe cinema establishment. So a drive-in thing that, you know, people can come to in their cars, you know, sort of echo the road movie thing. And then I'd like there to be a little stage in front of that because I would definitely want some sort of music thing going on probably after the screening. So Jim Jarmusch, you know, he's one of these guys, he's a bit of a polymath and he has a band called, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's like S-Q-U-Umlau-R-L-Squirrel, I guess. And they do this kind of, you know, slightly avant-garde, uh, you know, post, post-rock post stuff. And I think what I would love is, so bear with me here, right? So Screaming Joe Hawkins has the I spell on, I, I put a spell on you song in, in the film, right? He's sadly no longer with us. But I remember around the time I first saw this, there were a whole bunch of these Levi 501 ads on tv and screaming jay hawkins did a cover of tom waits's heart attack and vine which i think tom waits sued him for and they, they had to get rid of the whole thing but anyway he did, did exist i remember hearing it so what i would want is tom waits to come along at the end and do a cover and he would do it because he's a good friend of jim jarmusch so i believe he would turn up for this and he could do a cover of i put a spell on you and that would be the big finale for me and then i mean that's it you know best ever programming thing i would ever do in my in my entire life mission accomplished mic drop take a yeah. would be well into that i think yeah, the soundtrack in this film is 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 you know such an important part of it and there's the original music as well as this the the screaming jay hawkins track but um but yeah i mean you come out of this film you know humming that song and and singing that song um so i think you know let's let's get you know, encourage the audience to sing along sing along with tom there you go there you go that's how we pitch it i should also say because it's, it's not fair because john lurie who's the lead in it also does contribute a lot of music to the film so i would also love because he's also in a band the lounge lounge lizards for many years um and did some music for various soundtracks as well so i think him as well you know i don't i'm, I'm too i don't want to be too tom centric given he's not even uh-huh. in the film um but john lurie backing it as well and you know jim jarmusch's band can can noodle away in the background as well we got you know turn it into a real event at the end i hope that's what i'd like and if you, you know, had to come up with maybe a menu for the screening, what's the optimum snack to enjoy with Stranger Than Paradise? Well, there is a really funny discussion early on about TV dinners that um, Eddie and <laughs> Ava have. So I think given it's Jim Jarmusch and he is a bit hipster and cool, we'd have some gourmet chef make some sort of TV dinners, you know, in the little trays with the little sections, but it would be amazing food. And obviously they people could serve those to the cars, you know, as you were watching it at the drive-in. I think that would be a nice little touch to sort of, you know, suit the film. They, other than that, it's all cigarettes and coffee in, in the film. And I don't really want to encourage that necessarily for, for the audience. Uh, maybe the coffee, but not the cigarettes. So um, I think TV dinners is, you know, slightly healthier. <laughs> but if it's, if, it's gourmet, if it's gourmet version, then it's it's got to be the way to go. Yeah, this would be the hipster, you know, super, um, you know, nutritional, fair trade, yeah. know, some, some bro- sourced some, TV dinners. Some, some vegan bakery and brooklyn would supply you know the sort of the pastries and uh yeah yeah we, we jim jim would help us with this don't worry. this all sounds very jim as well actually you know i think he'd be into that <laughs> i hope so yeah 
And if you could invite one person from the film along to uh, maybe do a Q&A or to introduce the movie, who would you pick? I mean, Jim Jarmusch is a bit too obvious. Do you know who I'd like? And I, I don't necessarily think she's around anymore, so maybe this is a moot point. But the, the, the actress who plays Aunt Lottie, you know, <laughs> who just pops up in a, you know, gambling thing in Cleveland and stuff. I think because, again, going back to this rep comp- repertory company idea, I think people who are connected with it, who aren't necessarily the obvious people like, you know, the leading actors or, you know, the, the DP, Tom DiCillo, someone who has a history with the film, who can really talk to the experience of making it, but who we maybe haven't heard from. I think that would be really fun. Or even Sarah Driver, who's obviously a very key uh, Jim Jarmusch collaborator. But I, I think it suits the film, you know, because the, the, these people are all sort of wandering around. They wouldn't even make their own Q&A. So you want <laughs> someone who's not, you know, who's not one of the three leads. As much as it would be obviously amazing to talk to Richard Edson, Esther Ballant and John Lurie. I think just for the sort of purposes of making it a bit more Stranger Than Paradise-ish, I'd, I'd go for someone a little bit less uh, less obvious uh you know so aunt lottie if she's still with us otherwise uh someone like sarah driver would be amazing let's do it if we get sarah driver along she has to wear the straw hat <laughs> fantastic maybe an argyle sweater as well <laughs> i mean i know she doesn't wear one in the thing but i i keep thinking of his uh willie's fedora and his argyle sweaters and his uh, yeah cigarettes i mean it's 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 like even though it's made in the mid 80s that look was surely you know brooklyn or williamsburg you know 2015 as well so it's kind of timeless it's weird it's fa- it feels like a timeless movie in, in a weird way it doesn't have that 80s vibe at all and i think that's another really interesting thing about it and it's not just you know the black and white and uh, the, the sort of screaming joe hawkins soundtrack it's just there's something about it that if that was made in in the fifth in the 60s you would believe it you know it just has that real sort of very very unique um out of time feel which is again something i i really uh, i really enjoy about it if people want to watch uh, some of your work online lee where's the best place for them to go i'm on twitter which i think is at lee underscore singer and there's links there to a very very out of date website and i think my uh, vimeo page has a lot of my uh, sort of collected video essay work on but I've been doing it for a while now so places like Sight and Sounds and Little White Lies and IndieWire and some of the sort of video essay places um, you can you can find a fair few of my things but you know the, the, the Twitter handle and, and the website and Vimeo are probably the sort of the best places if, if people are interested nice well, we'll put a few links to um, some of the shows the uh, videos we talked about but yeah head over to youtube there's a whole wealth of stuff you've got quite a lot of videos out yeah i mean i i mean yeah i've been i've been doing it for a few years now and i just find it it's, it's something i gen- I just constantly engages me you know i think writing about film i still enjoy but there's something about the the, the audio visual editing of it that feels for me at least, something that is still quite invigorating and sort of energising and just, like I said earlier, trying to find a different way to sort of approach, you know, even films that we know, but certainly for other films that maybe haven't had you know, a lot of analysis, it just feels like that's a nice way to sort of, you know, try and start that whole thing going. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Lee. Thank you for having me. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. You can also listen on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. 
Our music is by Martin Ostrich, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.